0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Monica Kahan, the show today. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thank you.
0: Nice to see you. So... You're an Austrian wine importer today, but originally you were cooking in New York City.
1: So I have different phases in my life. And uh, I guess um, the wine phase started in 2003. But before that, I had a restaurant in New York uh, where obviously wine was a part of my life at that time already. In 2000, uh, we closed the restaurant to open a new restaurant. And unfortunately, 2001 changed everything. And um, basically, I was thrown off my course and plan to open this restaurant, which up to this day is not totally out of my system. Um, I lived across the World Trade Center and um, the um, events of that day um, obviously changed everything. I lost my apartment. I was dramatized by this day. I was in the building when both planes hit the building and buildings, and I was also there when the buildings collapsed. And as a matter of fact, my building was also damaged, and I'm, I can't believe that I actually survived this without any harm. Ten days after that, I went to Austria, because I didn't really know what, what to do. My investors pulled the investment out, so the restaurant was out of the question. And uh, I couldn't live in the building until the end of November. The, I didn't really want to um, stay in New York at that time for many reasons. I was, I had some sort of stress from the experience. And I was very disappointed that uh, the investors pulled the money out. So I was like, it's time for going back to Austria. And so 10 days after the event, I was in Vienna kissing the floor in on the airport because i was kind of afraid still i i was dramatized by every sound by every uh plane flying close and um i um at that time did not know where my life was going and as a matter of fact i was sitting on a park bench somewhere in vienna thinking what the hell am i going to do i miss new york i miss my friends i i what should i do should i open a restaurant in vienna should i and the phone rang and a journalist friend of mine called and said i heard i just heard you are in vienna um are you available we are, uh, a friend of mine is opening a, a actually renovating a restaurant and changing the concept and he's looking for somebody to bring in some international touch as well as we know you know how to cook austrian food and um so would you like to interview and i said sure and it happened to be a very influential man who has um, uh, who has been in the advertising world and uh now wanted to branch into restaurants and wine and he um uh, wanted me to do a audition cooking so i cooked for him Mostly um, Asian food, strangely enough, but um, also a couple Austrian dishes and uh, he hired me and I had eighteen cooks under me in uh, in Vienna uh, literally three months or two months after nine eleven i It was very good for me because it completely distracted me and helped me to focus on something completely different and it made me also aware that uh, actually the art of Austrian peasant cooking is disappearing in Austria. Uh, Most of the young cooks want to cook fusion Asian Mediterranean food. And their training is based on uh, French cooking uh, that they learn in the cooking schools. And my basic uh, training comes from my grandmother and my mother, which is obviously the, the, the origin of all the traditional peasant dishes of Austria comes from women. Obviously, Vienna has some influences from the empire. There are dishes that were brought from French cooks, etc. I mean, Austria was a melting pot, so there are so many different kinds of cuisines. But overall, the peasant women of the empire brought in anything from uh, the dumplings, the go- from the Bohemia, uh, from the Czech Republic, uh, you know, the palachinkan from Hungary to uh, uh, the Alpine uh, cheese spätzle. Those were all women's dishes that uh, were passed over generations to generations and from grandmother to, ma- to mother to daughter. So this is really my background, and uh, this was very appreciated by this um, gentlemen that hired me. And I started realizing that I have a gift that, that actually I didn't realize when I was in New York, because I always thought that everybody in Austria could cook much better than me because I've lived in New York all this time. So during that time, I was thinking, okay, that's great, but um, that's still... You know, I have no financing. New York, you need uh, a lot of money to open a restaurant. So how can I get back? And um, my love to wine goes way back. And I figured, uh, why not put together a portfolio and work as an agent? Because obviously, to be an importer, you need, again, to raise money. And that uh, was out of the question, being in Vienna. So I figured, why don't I go to some of the winemakers that I have already met during my time as a Restaurateur uh, approached him and said, "Hey, I'm, I would like to put together a portfolio of wines that I really personally like and uh, that I stand behind. That fits also to my food. You know, to me, wine has to go with the with food. And so, since I am a chef primarily, for me, the, the choices go with the way I cook. So, obviously." I will not choose a wine where I feel that I would overpower. So my wines tend to be more fruit forward, a little more extracted, a little more expressive. And I never cook food that's very um, discreet or, or delicate. So therefore also my wine's, fit that taste, my own taste, of course. The the wineries I started with were partially already in America. One producer was already with Michael Skernig, but then there was some issue, so he was uh, looking for a new representation. Some others were never in America. And uh, what they all had in common, they wanted to be in America, and they were trying for a while already, and they were looking for a way to get over. And so I... um, started very modestly with just a few and uh, sent samples to to America and uh, flew over there and uh, met with the first importer that I met was Frederick Wildman and uh, they immediately liked everything I presented so I never had to see the other appointments and it was like a one two three uh decision and we started working in September 2003 which was my first sales uh, meeting at Frederick Waldman, And uh, from that time on, we've been together. This year, it's 10 years. And in the meantime, I've um, taken on more producers. But also in the meantime, I started working with other importers in other parts of the country, also in New York and also in Canada.
0: And who did you start with in terms of producers?
1: Nitnaus. Anita and Hans Nittnaus, because in the town of Gors, there are 16 Nittnauzers and uh, it's very important to always mention the wife's name, because then you know which family it is. Because, you know, Austrian uh, wine, wineries are primarily run by families, and the women are always involved Almost, I would say, 80% of the time they run the, the administration or the the showroom and uh, sales. And they're totally involved. And to a large degree, most women also own part of the company. The other producer is Forstreiter Fritsch. And uh, I started with Graf Hardegg, which in the meantime, we are no longer associated with.
0: And one of the things that I find interesting about your portfolio today is that it represents some regions of Austria that aren't so in the market otherwise.
1: Well, the idea, of course, you know, originally, um, I had the idea to bring in wine uh, before I opened my restaurant, actually. It goes way back. At that time, of course, I would have brought in the top of a etc. Uh, but um, when I started it wasn't possible to take on the top producer of the Wachau or the top producer of, uh, uh, so I decided to go for wine regions that were not so well represented or to take a producer in a wine region that is young and upcoming. So that was at that time, the philosophy and Nittner certainly is one of the top producers of the Burgenland. And, um, Fridge and one of the three top producers of the Vagram, um, but regions that were not as well known. And then, you know, two years later, I started uh, going for even more esoteric grape varietals and areas, and I uh, went for Stadelmann. Uh, the region is uh, obviously traditionally, historically, the most important for Austrian uh, winemaking, because that was really the top quality of uh, the wine that was drunk during the Austrian uh, Empire. And uh, Rotkipfler and Zierpfandler historically extraordinary important grape varietals. And uh, Grunowidlina is like a young uh, uh, brother of these two uh, varietals. So for me, that 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 really is also part of my philosophy to really represent the varietals that are typical for the Terroir and obviously, indigenous grape varietals. Then I took on Neumeister from Southeast Steiermark, top producer of the Southeast Steiermark. And then I went to the western part of Steiermark and started to go for Schilcher. So I represent Strohmeier, who is... Not only uh, is, it, is it interesting that he works uh, with Schilcher, which is the Blaue Wildbacher, but also he's uh, one of the few producers in Austria that works natural. And uh, I mean, a lot of producers work, bi- work biodynamic and organic, but he works with unfiltered wine as well as no sulfur. And actually unfiltered is um, not really allowed by the But the wine law, so you cannot be called a Qualitätswein, so most people do filter their wines so they can put the famous red, white, and red on the the top of the wine capsule, which is the government control system of Austria. And um, when you do filter your wine, it is a Landwein, which is actually something that is also used for wines that have no appellation and uh, just wines from anywhere in Austria. So,
0: You're dealing with grape varieties that are perhaps less well-known even to people who are familiar with wines from Austria. You're dealing with regions that are less well-known to the same people. And you're dealing with a range of different farming practices from organic to biodynamic to natural. Is it hard to translate that into the market, or was the market fairly willing to hear what you had to say?
1: The market is always curious when you bring in uh, indigenous varietals, um, wines that are unoaked and authentic, but you obviously need to find the right people to understand that because it is not enough that somebody buys it. You really need the restaurant to or the store have the right people on the floor to sell it. And so that is, I think, the bigger problem. It's not so much to get the buyers interested. The obvious main problem still to up to this day is that even Grunovidlina is uh, practically unknown to most American Wine drinkers, and I'm not even saying average American here. I'm saying wine drinkers, and that you know that includes people like my accountant, my lawyer, my hairdresser. It doesn't matter um, where you go; they always say what what they can't even pronounce the grape varietal, and that's also one of the reasons we started doing our own brands to uh, teach to make it more accessible, to make it easier for Americans to remember these esoteric grape varietals. I don't think this is an Austrian problem, because if you look at Italy, there are so many wonderful grape varietals that people are not aware of. And how do you communicate that? And so that's why we came up with this funny name Grüner, um, which uh, is the phonetic spelling of Grüner with Lena. And most people say, "Do you have a Grüner?" You know, it's uh, just a shortening. Just we say Cabernet Sauvignon, we say a cab. So we thought, why don't we have Tony, my business partner, uh, phonetically spelling, screaming this name on the label. And it definitely has made people remember it, and they have fun saying, oh, I saw that Gruner. And it helps all Gruner with Lina, not just ours.
0: Is the market for these kind of wines different within Austria? Does Zierflander have a bigger niche or a wider understanding in the home market than it does in the, the export market?
1: Well, actually, with Zierfandler and Rotkipfle, it's a problem in Austria also now. It used to be, I remember, my father had primarily Zierpfanle and Kipfler in his cellar. That is what was collected. I mean, that's the wine you would serve. When Grushov met Kennedy in in Vienna in, in the 50s, that's what they would put on the, the state's dinner. Uh, they would serve that. But then I think uh, I would say in the 70s, it changed quite a lot. People started moving away from, you know, Zierfandl and Rotkupfer can be a little more powerful in style. It can also be on the sweeter side. It depends how obviously how it's made, how much residual sugar is left. But uh, it uh, is not the everyday drinking wine. For people of now, of this generation, they would like something in Austria. They drink specifically now very dry wines, high acidic and dry wines. So Grunewit fit much more the profile. And also it was easier to grow. You need not to be as careful with Grunewit as with Zierpfandle and Rotkipfle. Zierpfandle and Rotkipfle historically only grows in this region for reasons, because it's the perfect climate and soil and therefore um it has never really been successful outside the Thurman region.
0: Do you think that that has translated into less name recognition because there's just less quantity?
1: Yes, absolutely and specifically even within within the termen region, the uh, a lot of the producers switch to Rotkopfler and Zierpfander There's literally very little of Zierpfandler grown and actually the best uh, vineyards that are left of Zierpfandler are with the Stadelmann family because the grandfather believed that that was the more noble grape varietal, which it is because it ages much longer and better. Uh, so Rotkipfler has dominated in the German region, and I think also a lot of people switched from Rotkipfler to other grape varietals. Even even in the German region, there's a lot of Grunovitlina now grown and other varietals uh, that are popular in Austria overall. And in the Termen region, you don't have many top producers. The majority of the producers in the German region are Heurigen uh, owners, so wine tavern owners. And when you come to a wine tavern, you maybe want to drink a Sauvignon Blanc tonight or a Riesling. And so they have to have all these grape varietals available. So they grow pretty much everything to um, cover that need. And also, let's not forget, uh, the Turman region also is perfect for red wine. So there uh, is part of the Turman region is Pinot Noir and saint Laurent. So, obviously, more and more Austrians drink red wine. So, that's also becoming a very important uh, segment.
0: So, you do feel that in Austria, the red wines are are popular?
1: Well, more and more. Especially younger people are more and more interested in drinking red wine. And for the longest time... I would say Austria was almost 100% a white wine country. When you went anywhere to dinner, it didn't matter if you were eating venison or or fish, we were drinking white wine. Of course, the appropriate white wine, but it was white wine. Uh, but now you see definitely uh, more of an interest in, in reds, the Blaufränkisch and Zweigelt, um, becoming more and more dominant on uh, all the wine lists. And um, we... Austrians used to, I mean, I would say the people who were collectors were collecting Italian, French wine. And they're starting to, you know, their cellars are now full of Austrian red wine. And that has definitely changed since the 80s. And Nitnaus was one of those pioneers that changed that. Because people before didn't think that Austria could make such great reds.
0: And what do you think propelled that change? Was it climate or was it attitude?
1: Well, I think it's both. Education. I mean... These pioneers of Austrian red wine uh, were looking in other countries, studying, learning, um, so they had to first learn the technique and uh, then find their own identity, and that is obviously the the philosophy of the top red wine makers of Austria is not to make a wine that tastes like a uh, French wine or Italian wine which on the beginning i think they were more trying to copy and rather than finding themselves but now i think they really have found their direction, and the more they experience they have, the better the wines get. but I think additionally, of course, the climate change is uh, adding to that because obviously the grapes now get a much riper much riper grape material than we used to have. Austria used to be a cooler country now, if you come in there in the summer it's we always compare the temperature to New York, my mother and I when I'm here, and it's almost the same temperature during the summer.
0: Do you find different approaches to tannin management in the way that we might see with Nebbiolo, where some people are more modern and some are more traditional, or in Rioja, does that carry through with Austrian reds as well?
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think that is driven by the Austrian consumer. Obviously, the Austrian consumers who want to drink a New World-style red or white And so the market reacts. So there are Austrian uh, winemakers who want to cover the Austrian market needs, and so they make anything you can in Austria can pretty much get a an over oak chardonnay to a uh, New World powerful red. And if you're in a blind tasting, nobody would know that this is Austrian. But these wines are not exported; Uh, they stay in Austria to a large degree. And uh, what comes here is obviously the indigenous grape royals, the more um, typical in style and taste and uh, authentic original wines.
0: So is it the case that with the cost of importing wines from other regions, those more modern wines taste exotic to the domestic audience in Austria at the same price point or less?
1: Well, I think taste in general, I mean... uh, uh, there are young people who eat McDonald's every day. I mean, it is a different time. We're not. It's Austria is not the Austria when I was a child. So you eat different food. You a lot of Asian food. Um, people eat a lot of spicy food. I mean, spicy food was traditionally part of the Austrian Empire, but it's definitely more common that people eat these exotic flavors where years ago they would eat Austrian food primarily. So now you need also to, since people are always looking for new tastes, they want to look for new tastes in food and cocktails and everything. However, it's experimental. I think that uh, uh, more and more young people, though, uh, realize that their foundation is Austria. Austrian wine, specifically, is still the number one wine that Austrians drink. Let's not forget that. It's only a minor percentage. But obviously because of that the Austrian winemakers need to cover that desire to drink a Californian wine or a French wine so they, so there are wines to go to if you want to go for that.
0: We hear wine. often about the tendency of Austrians to drink their whites young. Does that carry through to the Reds as well or is it a different market?
1: It's true. Uh, the Austrians drink the wines too young. It's, uh, it's uh, um, that goes back. I really feel that Austria still, even though it's such an old wine country, going back four thousand years, we still are a young wine country when it comes to drinking wine, not just for fun and to, you know, quench your thirst. I mean, there is still uh, the need to educate people that, you know, you don't drink a red when it's not ready and so on and so on. But Um, I mean, how many people drink uh, aged reds here? I mean, also a small group of people.
0: So you spoke a little bit about the Tharman region. What about a region like the Bergenland? You import a producer from there. What should I know about reds from the Bergenland these days?
1: Well I I import actually three different wineries at the moment uh, Hans and Anita Nitners from Gols from Neusiedlsee they are known for Blaufränkisch as well as Zweigeld, but they also do blends Austrian uh, traditional uh, wine uh, going back maybe to the late uh, 70s, 80s, started with cuvées. So that was the first, I think the first thing that uh, you should know is that is a tradition in Austria that there are cuvées that probably was inspired by Bordeaux. And so they blend generally speaking, a little bit of international grapes in there. So there could be a little Merlot, there could be a little Cabernet, or maybe um, Syrah even. But primarily, you will always see the majority of the grape is Zweigelt Zwei or Blaufrankisch or St. Laurent. With uh, the producer Perkel, which is also from say, they still are more leaning towards the Bordeaux. And Nick has found more, I think, his new style of um, Austrian identity, where he works with very little oak and no new oak. He works with uh, primarily 500 liter used barrels, a little bit of new 500 liter. But um, his goal is to make real fruit forward, you know, wines without wood. He works biodynamic. And he has two different sites. The Blaufränkisch grow on the Leitberg region. And that is perfect because it's very mineralic. And um, you have predominantly limestone and slate. And on the other side of the lake where he grows the Melo and the cabernet and the zweigelt. It's a richer soil. It's also warmer climate. uh, And you have some chalk, but primarily sand and loam, deep loam and gravel. And there you have, because there's a lake in between that controls the temperature at night, uh, you, you get nice, cool uh, nights. But uh, during the day, it's really, really hot. On the other side, where the Blaufränkisch grows, it's an elevation of 500 meters. And the Leiterberg area has is you would say in Austria it's a hill, but it is a mountain in the Burgenland because Burgenland is rather flat. That area, that area has much more rain and it's cooler also during the day. So it makes perfect blau Frankish. doesn't like uh, rich soils and hot climate. It's a little like Riesling. It likes, you know... Uh, mineralic soil and uh, harder conditions to grow in so i think uh, what you should what you should know about the stylistic is uh, that uh, you can find something that is really um i would say revolutionary for austria is the the new finding of that Frankish is just such a a great varietal and has such potential to be um, great for the cellar, etc. But I think Blaufränkisch um, is is underestimated. Or was underestimated by the Austrians for years, and now they have realized that that is a really important grape for the Burgenland. That really doesn't grow in Niederösterreich or German region. It is really a unique grape. royal where Zweigeld grows all over Austria, I mean all over the wine regions of Austria. So, Burgenland, I would say, discovered the Blaufränkisch for themselves.
0: And what about a region like the Wagram?
1: The Wagram? Um, well, actually, it's interesting it's the Wagram originally was growing a lot of the Rotavitlina. And they switched a lot to Grunavitlina and Riesling. And now, in the last, um, I would say... 10 years or so, Rotavitlina is slowly popping up much more again because people realize that they should not completely forget that varietal. So I think for Vagram, Rotavitlina should be, if there ever is a DAC Vagram, I would say that it should definitely be part of that. It but then, of course, it's political. There's not enough producers who grow it. And, you know, that's the same problem in the Thurman region. That's why we don't have a DAC there yet. Because what is it? Is uh, the Rotkipfler the DAC or the Zierpfandler? Or is it uh, Pinot Noir? Or is it St. So it's something in certain in these regions, it's a little complicated um, what is really authentic. But definitely, wagram makes beautiful Grunewitlinas and Rieslings because of the Loess soil. The Loess is perfect, gives wonderful fruit and uh, this spiciness that um, only develop in deep Loess soils. So very unique and, I mean, completely different to the Kremstad or the Wachau. I mean, even in the Krem style, you have so many different styles, depending, is it uh, primary rock, is it close to Krems, or is it farther north, or is it on the other side of the Danube where you have conglomerate? So it is really you know that is the fun about the wine business that uh, you you there's so much out there to choose from, and I didn't want to just specifically focus on one area and say, okay, this is or one or two areas I think to me it's um, such a reflection of when you've traveled for Austria and you ate the food, and then you know, oh, now now I'm drinking a Schilcher. i I know where I am. I'm in the West Steiermark. I want some pumpkin seed oil. I, I want some uh, uh, some uh, cured speck with this. You know, I want some chestnuts. It, it, it's just certain things that you associate with the with the wine, and and that's so wonderful about wine. It can travel and and transport. Traditions and and also uh, memories. And so for me, uh, uh, that's the joy, I think, of my selection that I have chosen all these very contrary uh, winemakers.
0: Because in the, the Steiermark or Styria, which is the same.
1: Well, this is just like we say Austria, and actually the name is Österreich. And Steiermark is the German word, and Styria is the English word, just like Wien is the Austrian word, a German word for Vienna. And I think it's very misleading that everybody says Niederösterreich and then Styria. So let's stick with the German words. It's the Steiermark. French would not translate their regions either.
0: And that's an area where there is quite a bit of wine, but we don't see a lot here in the United States from that particular zone of Austria. Why might that be?
1: Well, because as we tend to always put People in little boxes, we also do that with wine. And Austria is in this little box that says Grunewitlinen and uh, maybe a little Riesling, but certainly not Gelber Muscatella or uh, Chaloney or, Scha- or Sauvignon Blanc. And that is really the key issue why the Steiermark is not so known, because they don't grow any Vitlina and riesling a little bit tiny amounts of riesling so the Steiermark really is on the western side almost primarily blauer wildbacher or colloquially called schilcher and the other areas the south and the southeast is uh, sauvignon blanc chardonnay morillon pinot Grigio, which we call grauburgunder and uh, gewürztraminer roter traminer and morillon which is the chardonnay and um, Gelba Muscatella. That's really what uh, this area stands for. And they make wonderful wines. I mean, the Sauvignons of that region are sensational, world-class.
0: And what would define a Sauvignon from that area from something like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a California Sauvignon Blanc, or a Sancerre? What should I be looking for if I'm picking up an Austrian Sauvignon Blanc from there?
1: Well, actually, between... um, I would say the Austrians fit somewhere in the middle. They're, they don't. Then you can't really compare it. Some have elements of the grassiness of the New Zealand ones, but then there's also some very creamy and more citrus styles that remind me of of California. But combined, it's almost like you combine the both. They have also Sancerre qualities, so it really depends on which uh, producer and uh, what's the style how they make it I, I can only talk about the producers i like and uh, they they make very solid very fruit forward uh wines that have the little bit of elderberry and and grassiness and but they also have some sometimes tropical fruits and they're very uh, and citrus fruits can be extremely powerful. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sauvignon Morfitel, but that is so such a unique wine. Ages tremendously. I mean, in general, the Sauvignons I've tasted from Neumeister age for years. I have not tasted so many Sauvignons from other countries that are older, so I cannot really tell you if if Sauvignon ages like the Austrian souvenirs that I have tasted. But I have had dinner parties where we opened all the souvenirs and there was one bottle which was definitely corked. And everybody said, well, yeah, a souvenir doesn't age. I said, no, no, this bottle is corked. It's, that's the reason it doesn't taste right. It was one of those secret corks, you know, where you weren't 100% sure. And so I insisted that we open another bottle because the people who were very um, educated wine people were all convinced Sauvignon doesn't age that long. And then they were all quite surprised uh, how well this wine tasted. So I think, um, I think if you like Sauvignon Blanc, I think Stärmeck is a place for you and uh, you'd be surprised.
0: And what about Krems? You mentioned it before, you have a producer there that makes pre-phylloxera vine wine.
1: Well, the creme style, like I said, is fascinating because, uh, I, f- I mean, I love the creme style. I truly love the creme style. I think the the varietal of soil and styles um, really make it, if you like uh, Riesling and if you like Grunavitlina, that's a place you have to visit. The producer Forstreiter is on the other side of the Danube, which is the conglomerate part of the Kremstahl. The conglomerate um, soil reaches all the way to the uh, Treisental. It goes a little bit on the other side of the Danube as well, but it's mostly in uh, in in the area of Hollenburg. It's called Hollenburger Conglomerate. And it is compressed gravel from the Danube, when, it, when the Danube was a large, wide river, the basic beach of the Danube was compressed. And so it kind of looks, if you look at it, uh, it, it, it looks almost like um, concrete with, with rocks in between, like when you build a house. And, uh, but it's a natural formation. It's hard as a rock. But in between, there's a little sand. So if you scrape it, it's a little porous. So it's a it's a very interesting soil that uh, makes very fruit forward intense wines, and uh, but on the other side uh, of the there's a mountain range right where the Fassaretten wines are. If you go north, you if you drive over this mountain range, you end up in the Treisental. and there it's much cooler because you have the alpine air hitting. Um, Basically, uh, you're away about an hour from the beginnings of the Alps, so you get a lot more cooler air and rain. So it's a quite different style of the conglomerate, a very mineralic style. We, I find the treisindal quite interesting, and I'm looking to find a producer there right now. But uh, to go back to Forster, a uh, much warmer climate there, l- a little less rain. And so you have these really intense, beautiful... Rieslings and Grunewitlina. But in in the case of Forstreiter, I think he just has a very unique style as a winemaker, period. Uh, he always says he doesn't want to make a wine f- because that's a style that people want to taste, because he could. He just makes it the way he likes it, and he really makes it for himself, so to speak. He doesn't follow trends, because he always been a little off the beat bit his style. And some people find it controversial because they are really intense, big gruners without being flabby. You know, they're real, they sing, they have a lot of nice acidity. But now it's interesting in the last couple of years, he's becoming more and more popular in Austria. And he just won uh, the top Coupe Kremstar DAC reserve um, event from the Firestaff which was obviously a sensation because he beat pretty much everybody in the star And uh, Nigel won the Rieslings Riesling uh, event. Uh, so, you know, he's now in best company with his style. And I guess uh, it took a while that people understood it.
0: One of the things I've noticed about Austria, at least from an outsider perspective, is that it does tend to seemingly place a lot of emphasis on wine competition within the country for producers in a way that is kind of reminiscent for me of Australia, uh, almost, where the producers are very self-reflective about their own wines that I don't see in, in a region like, say, Bordeaux or even in you know Rioja. I don't see a lot of people getting together and tasting a bunch and then awarding out who's the best today. Does that affect the culture uh, of Austrian winemaking? Do people say, well, he won, so maybe he's on to something? Or has it provoked changes in terms of style?
1: Well, I have to ask you a question. How How does um, a winery in Bordeaux that's, let's say, a young winery become known? Do they advertise? Um, how do they get well, known?
0: Well, usually through points and stuff, like through critics. You
1: know. Right. Okay. So uh, – yeah, well, in Austria we have the same. We also have wine critics and we have wine magazines and wine we have actually more wine magazines and wine books than than countries that are four times the size. So we um I guess uh, because we have so many wine makers, we have I mean the 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 size of Austria, the 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 wine growing size is 46 Thousand hectares, and Australia is one hundred and sixty four thousand hectares in Austria. We have up to twenty thousand wine growers in Australia with almost four times the size as two thousand so I think because there 's so many tiny wineries. These tiny guys want to be known, so they want to compete and show that, you know, I'm here too. I can do this. Uh, Maybe my father was not such a good winemaker, but I am better and I want to show that. And so I think that's because there's so many, I think. That's why they want to compete and, and get noticed. And I think that the journalists cannot possibly taste all these wines. There are about four to 500 wineries that are established, that everybody knows, that people recognize the name and the label. But all these other people would just get forgotten. And so they need something so they can go and prove themselves. Now, obviously, this Kremstal Coupe, the DAC Reserve, is not such an event because that only the top people are kind of invited to those things to those events. But um, Peter Moser is like the probably most powerful and prominent uh, uh, wine journalist of Austria. So that is something where all the top people also still participate. They want to be in his guide. They need to be there because of export now. I mean, people even in New York look into stuff and say, who is this? Oh, uh-huh, he has three stars, so he must be okay. So it's becoming important because... We don't have anything in the United States that we can look in. There is no such guide here. There is no brand recognition for Austrian wine so far. So actually, we are looking very much what the Austrians are saying because that's the only real guide guidance we can give. Um, we, we really need, I'm, if journalists are listening right now, we really need help with building brand names so consumers... Not just by generic wine. Oh, I want a Gruner. It doesn't matter from who. It would be important that people start realizing there is a difference. There are so many really good winemakers, but there are ones that are a little better than the others, and they need to be recognized
0: Has the quantity issue really hindered that brand building? In other words, if there's so many producers in a fairly small country with a lot of diverse grape varieties and a lot of diverse regions that are all a little bit different, does that limit the quantity and harm the ability to build a stronger brand across a a market like America?
1: Well, first of all, uh, many of the producers that I mentioned of those 20,000 wine growers, about 6,000 have their own label the other 20,000 uh, are mostly grow i mean the other 14,000 are mostly growers but uh, nevertheless um, they don't have a lot of wine so there're only so many who have the quantities to even be, would be able to satisfy the needs for the united states but we would never be able to compete with the quantities that Italy or New Zealand or Australia offers here. We we just don't have the, the capacity. The only way would be that the little guys would be bought by the larger guys, and then it would be just like in Australia that we only have 2,000 winemakers instead of uh, 20,000. I think um, if, for example... America really would go for Austrian wine, and we would all of a sudden see a tremendous amount of of uh, demand then this is what probably would happen Then it would turn into a serious business and right now it 's more like small guys trying to sell a little bit in the united states it 's not a real business yet I mean as a matter of fact if you there 's really a big um, conflict between what wine geeks think and what the actual business end of import say the importers that are real you know business guys they look at statistics uh, they look at different every year there are guides coming out what the percentage what are the trends etc and austria is not even mentioned in most of these books i mean we literally don't sell enough to america And on the other hand, you have the wine geeks who say, oh, Cura Ritlina is, you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere maybe in New York where they eat or where they drink, but it's not everywhere in New York. It's uh, everywhere in the good restaurants. (laughs) It's everywhere in the good wine stores, but it's not in most places. And as I said before, most consumers have never heard of it. So it would be actually sad to... Say, oh, Vitlina is over before it's actually started. <laughs> you know, it hasn't even begun to touch most Americans, and it is really, I think, um, sad that this is happening mean, because we have such passion. These small wineries have so much passionate in making their wine and they're they're selling maybe you know five pallets to America and and uh, to say oh you know Austria is producing mass produced wine is absurd we don't the whole tank of an argentinian winery would fit uh, i think the whole village the wine of a whole village So it's really, I mean, if people really travel and see how artisanal and how family and true to nature Austria really is, then they wouldn't say these things. I think it's uh, important that they really go and look, and and then they will they will have a different picture that Austria cannot be compared to a country that's overproducing or mass market producing something. Because I've you know they've been really in the last ten years I've seen articles come and go where there are different people trying to destroy Grüner Lina and I have no idea where that comes from. Why are they are not trying to destroy what really is the problem? Uh, the real mass market problem. Yeah. You know? So um, I just can say, no, I think Grunovitlina will stay and it will get more known. I think it's just in its baby shoes right now. And uh, if that happens, we will never cover all of America, but we will reach, hopefully, at least the wine drinkers that will then know that it's a grape just like sauvignon blanc or riesling.
0: If I didn't know much about Grüner Veltliner, what should I know about it?
1: It's extremely versatile. It has three really major styles. It has a very dry, light, easy drinking, that's why it's often compared to pinot grigio, very easy drinking, uncomplicated food wine. The second category would be a medium range, which we used to call a cabinet, which is out of favor in Austria for reasons to not to be compared with a sweeter wine. A cabinet would be in the Wachau, we would say the Federspiel, or in uh, Kremstal or Kampdal, we would say the DAC Kampdal or, or Kremstal, and, and the medium category just means that it's um, from a single vineyard, in often the case. It can be coming from several vineyards, but from top uh, vineyards. And it also means that it is harvested a little later, where the first category is light and crisp, is harvested first. And then comes the second harvest, which is end of September, and middle of, depending on the weather, of course. And then the third category means... The best, meaning later harvest, harvested in October, it's the wine that the winery is proud of. That's the wine that will age. Uh, the medium range obviously will age maybe four or five years, but the reserve DAC reserve or the Smarakt, depending on the region, um, will be you know there for ten, twenty, thirty, forty years.
0: And it's interesting because when we read about Austria. In this country, sometimes we hear about regions where they're getting a lot of ripeness and they're not quite sure what to do with the ripeness because of climate change and areas that were warm already. Does coming to the game after those areas were already picked through and searching out areas that were a little bit more on the margins of the wine world, has that allowed you to sort of sidestep that issue and benefit from regions that are actually benefiting from climate change rather than those that are in a little bit of a questioning period as a result of it?
1: Well, it has also, I think it has something to do if you have to irrigate or not and some of the areas uh, are more affected where they must irrigate when it's not raining (laughs) and last summer was actually a good example it was terrible, it wasn't raining forever and ever And um, so if you have uh, soil that can, you know, have a nice reserve of water, it will definitely benefit in in such summers. And uh, additionally, of course, um, uh, it also helps with the bird problem. You know, if you can harvest a little earlier, you have to just know now when to harvest you cannot go by what we did 10 years ago especially with the red wine uh, there's always the problem because close to the nice let's say there's invasions of birds so it helped in a way the 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 warmer summer help because the grapes are ripe earlier so um it depends i mean it can be a good thing it can be a bad thing it depends really on, on the microclimate and uh, on the winemaker if it's beneficial or not on the other hand we do a lot of the people that work biodynamic and organic for them sometimes it is better because obviously dry years are better because you don't have uh, funguses Uh, so it really it's it really is an individual and year-specific question but overall what you probably also mean is high alcohol Um, and um, again that depends on when you harvest yeah, you know, if you wait too long, yes, it can happen. And uh, but since I work with mostly producers who use absolutely no botrytis, it is necessary anyway. We don't want botrytis, so that's. I mean that that is maybe also what winemakers from areas say about the vacheau. I mean they they have to irrigate in some some cases, and they have uh, sometimes more botrytis in than. Kremstarhl produces don't get don't get me wrong, I love the Wachau wines. I really do, but uh, that's the rival let's say there's a little rivalry between the Kremstahl and the Wachau, and that's their argument, not mine. I'm actually would love to represent the Wachau and uh, producer, but it has to be the right one.
0: One of the other rivalries that seems to be going on in Austria today is different organizations certifying biodynamic growers. Uh, You work with a range of different producers in organic and biodynamic. What do you hear from them in terms of different conversations within Austria about farming and certification?
1: Well, one of the thing is that some of the producers, they don't really care so much anymore about being labeled biodynamic. They just do it. I mean, we have we have the issue that uh, Demeter has uh, owns the word biodynamic in the United States, so we are not allowed to say that our wines are biodynamic unless we are part of the Demeter group. So, therefore, our labels do not say it. I don't even put it on the website, I just say organic. But um, the fact is they do it, and that's really what really counts. If you really... If you're really uh, only interested or believe people who put something on a label, then um, again, we become uh, dependent on commercial entities that control everything. And I think it should be, especially I should be a little bit more liberal, the, the whole idea. And then the other side is that I, in the case of Stromer, for example, he doesn't even want to label himself because he feels... That that's a group of people he doesn't need to be part of. He does what he does, and um, you know the wines speak for themselves. And um, I mean, I have uh, Stadelmann does not certify biodynamic, whether with the respect group nor with the Demeter group. Uh, they just they just like to do it that way, and uh, they certified organic. But in the United States, we are not certified with any producer because. It's just complicated, it costs money, and um, I don't feel that the, the top sommeliers or the top wine buyers really care. If you if you tell them that's how it's made, that's enough. Uh, but then there is a group of people who will never sell you wine, because it must certif- be certified, and we will lose that segment, and they will not believe us, and that's just how it is.
0: And what is the market segment for Austrian wines that are not Grüner Liener that are from different areas of Austria, whether they be white or red? Are they being sold at Austrian restaurants? Are they being sold at wine bars looking for something different uh, to offer their customers? What is the U.S. market? Are they being sold to collectors who put them in their cellar? Where, where do the wines go?
1: Well, at this point, I don't think there are many collectors who collect Grüner Veltliner. So uh, obviously, it's even more uh, unusual that a collector would have any Austrian wine in his cellar. Maybe, maybe Riesling more than Grüner because they can associate Riesling with German Riesling, and many people think Germany, Austria is the same. So maybe there, there the Riesling has an advantage. But obviously, we all know that Austrian winemaking is quite different than, than German. And so, I think that uh, wine collectors generally would not uh, have um, much of Austria, period. Definitely red wines, I doubt it. And maybe they have a TBA from Austria. Where is the home of non gruner I would say... Um, Small wine bars um, that uh, have really wine-knowledgeable know- staff to do four-star restaurants that have real great staff. It's really an issue who who works there. Otherwise, you can't really sell it. It will not sell on a list by itself. It will be there. And I see it. I, when I eat out and I see a Stadelmann Mandelher from 2007, uh, I know what's going on. I, I know that... Um, there's nobody loves it. Nobody knows. The, probably the waiters never tasted it because the sommelier bought it in 2007. And there's a new... Then in the meantime, there were four new buyers and they probably don't know it either. So that is really the, the, the situation. But I don't care because they're aging something wonderful. So if um, one day somebody actually does order this, they will be amazed. And um, the problem is only when it's a classic style. If you see a Gelber Muscatello from Südsteiermark, that's uh, vintage 2007, then we have an issue. And that will not be a good image for Austria.
0: You said earlier that there weren't a lot of journalists on this side of the Atlantic who were translating this for people and that the reference critics were in Austria itself. To me, that that kind of brings along the question of, well... If they're in a different context and they're using the wine with different cuisine, are they recommending different wines than we would recommend here to our own drinkers? And you are someone that cooks at home every day, which is something I know about you. So how do you find that the wines work with food here in New York?
1: That is maybe something I should have mentioned earlier. The Grunewit is an amazing, versatile food wine. I I mean, it be, not only because of the three uh, styles that the wine is made, it's just within each style, it is so versatile. It really fits so perfectly with some American dishes. I mean, not just Gruner-Vitlina. I mean, I can, our souvenirs, our... I can find so many dishes that are typically American. I mean, Thanksgiving, oh my God, uh, Austria has a variety of grape varietals that are perfect because of the, let's say, the, the content of sweet and sour. Or um, you also have, uh, Americans eat a lot of oysters and seafood and sushi and so on. I mean, Austrian wine is just perfect. Grüneviglina and, and oysters is a match in heaven. It's barbecue zweigeld the spice of uh, zweigeld uh, is just perfectly made for barbecue food or burgers and i mean pizza i mean you name it uh, austrian wine i can I, I, it's made for any cuisine it's really and because america is such a melting pot like the austrian empire used to be the food is uh, we we have this kind of mixed type of food in austria anyway from spicy serbian dishes to spicy goulash whatever we are uh, we've, we we've, we are used that these wines go for 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 all these different cuisines. So that's the same uh, applies the same to American cuisine. And I actually do not always cook Austrian food. I cook a lot of uh, international cuisine, and uh, we we're so excited to match these wines with any any cuisine from Mediterranean to Mexican, Nuevo Latino, you know, sashimi.
0: You grew the portfolio from three producers to ten producers in the course of about ten years. That seems like a somewhat small portfolio. Is that a factor of what's available in Austria that you really like? Is that a factor of what the market will bear here in New York, or is it something that I'm not seeing?
1: Well, first of all, um, I, I'm I, we developed our own brands, so we can you can add these as. Uh, time-consuming projects that took a lot of us because you know we have to create the label we have to create the wine uh, it's not like we go somewhere and say give me this wine we're actually making the wine together with the winemaker and um you know we created a, a a red wine blend with Scheibelhofer who is a more modern style um producer from the uh say region um which is called Andau and um that's a complete different project than uh, taking a wine that's already finished, you know, so you have to, because we didn't want a wine that tasted like his wines. We wanted that he make something a little different, but I knew he could do it. And because we wanted to make it a little more what the market needs here. And um, so these things take time. The other reason is uh, that uh, you you need an importer we are not importers we are agents so being an agent I always have to find a match I cannot just say oh I mean if it was up to me I would have 50 wineries already Um, but I need to find the right house for the property so I cannot uh, just uh, go to everybody in New York then uh, obviously um, the importers I work with would say well you you go to everybody, you know. We don't like you anymore. So you have it's a diplomatic thing. You cannot just overflood flood the market. I mean, I'm not uh, a brand. Monica Car Selections not a brand that everybody would accept that I'm everywhere. You know, I'm still a, an esoteric portfolio agent. So that is the problem in New York. So I have to be taking little baby steps to build up each importer to. So the portfolio becomes more important to them, and then I can bring in more. I mean, next year we'll definitely bring in one or two new producers to Wildman, but it's just, you know it's you you have to take baby steps to build it up, because um, you need to educate the sales reps, you need to uh, you know get the enthusiasm enthusiasm that i have translated to the whole company and so you don't if you put too much at once uh, somebody will be left behind too and you don't want that you take on five producers and only one of the five is selling because then the other four will be unhappy and call me and say monica what's going on i want that the austrians are happy and if they're not happy let them go somewhere else I, i i really give my best however uh, I'm not responsible for everything. I have to, I, I'm in between people. You know, I'm in between the, the importer, then the, the salespeople, and then comes the buyer, and then comes the, the bartender, the waiter, the, and the consumer, you know. So there's so many people in between. To make it happen, I think it's not so good to have too much. You have to focus, you have to really build up. Uh, the business for the people. And I, I really like to work with people that like me and I, we we also friends in Austria. We hang out together, we drink together, we eat together and uh, I don't want to disappoint my friends. You know?
0: Monica Kaha, she's working with small growers in regions you may not have heard of with friends. Thank you very much for being here today. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton,